I'd say about 4 o'clock, 4 or 5 o'clock. And, of course, I'm a morning person. How many of you are morning people? I can tell you uh, from experience that if the night, the people that like to stay up at night ever be, get in power, they will kill every morning person. Am I right, <laughs> Pastor Hank? Today I want to really talk to you about death. That's, a great, that's an incredible uh, sermon to be talking on pa- Palm Sunday, but... Let's face it, from the day you are born, you have a destiny with death. I've been there. I passed over. I came back. Let me share this with you. I have not a fear of death. And why? Because I know what's in store for the people of God. Amen? Um, now, how many of you have ever, hold on, I've got to do a little prop here. How many of you have ever watched a movie about Bond, James Bond? 007, shaken but not stirred. James Bond, I've always had a fascination from the original, also with having terrible eyesight. Also, I always, always had a fascination with Bond. I've, I've been to many places that he, in fact, I've tried to go everywhere that he went. When uh, Roger Moore fought Jaws, how many remember that? When he fought him in Brazil and they were, he was in the cable car. I was in that cable car and I, I'm, I'm waiting for Jaws to come up and no big, everybody's about this tall. So, but James Bond had what was called he was a 007. That is a, Z, and remember Jethro Bodine said it's the double knot spy? But 007 actually meant they had a license to kill. License to kill. Let me tell you something. God wants you dead. That's a, that's, that's a tough thing to say. God wants you to die. To die physically? The devil wants that, but I'm talking about a death where you be like Christ. The Bible says we are to live, we are to humble ourselves, and have a, to die out to self. Now, in Job 36, 11, God brought this to my mind. It says that they that obey and serve him, how many of you want to serve God? They that, if they obey and serve him, they shall, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. That word for pleasure literally means contentment. Contentment. This is the, this is the obedient factor. God wants, first of all, obedience from his people. The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant 
and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became, what? Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, my brother, now is the time, and I don't want to scratch this, but if we can just put this gingerly. Yeah, here, I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a folder right there I was going to put it on. It's good? Okay. Perfect. Now, if you've seen this, how many of you have seen the, the logs, the hewn logs that are out in the parking lot? That's two log cabin kits, which I got at such a discount that's going to be put on my property in Hartford, Tennessee. How many of you have ever been in a log cabin? Well, let me tell you, the first time I ever came to a log cabin, I won't say how many years, but it's probably older than the amount of years. The years I went to the log cabin was about 1960. That's quite a... I don't think you were born, right? Yeah, I, I was seven. That's right. Okay. I walked into this. Now, it was in a place called Sevierville, Tennessee. Anybody been to Sevierville, Tennessee? Okay, well, my my dear aunt, I had an Aunt Bonnie that lived in a beautiful house with no running water or no indoor plumbing or no indoor toilet. She lived in Carson Springs, Tennessee, and we went and saw her and my brother and I decided that during that week, we would abstain from any form of using the bathroom. In essence, we held it. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to an outhouse. Anybody? We'd walk in that outhouse and look up, and there were wasp nests buzzing around. And then you walk in, and the, the smell was horrible. Well, we went then to Sevierville, Tennessee. My mother was born in Carson Springs, Tennessee. They did not have an outhouse, and she understood. It's no big deal. Now, if I have to, it's fine. However, my brother and I, when we decided, or when we finally got to Sevierville to our cousin Eva's house, my mother's cousin Eva, she had running water and a bathroom. Thank you, God. You don't miss the things unless they're gone. Now, that's the first time I ever walked into a log cabin was in Sevierville, Tennessee. And I'll never forget it. It was near a creek. Fifty-five years later, God has given me two log cabins and a house that's right in front of a 30-foot-wide creek stocked with trout. Thank you, Jesus. And, of course, you're all invited. I can tell you one person that is going. Yes. So I brought this up here for an, uh, just to show you about what the dimensions were of the material that was used in the cross of Christ. Now, this is approximately 
four inches wide right here, approximately eight inches long, high here, and then the cross that he had to carry. Now, this weighs, I would say, what, 20 pounds? Times that by 10. 200 pounds. It was not smooth-hewn like this furniture-grade uh, oak. This was hand-hewn by axes, splinters all over it. And as he walked up that hill, now remember, and, and the, the thought hit me very, very powerfully. One week, or the, the, this day, he was entering into Jerusalem, and people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Those same people, within a week, less than a week from today, were crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. You see, the tide can turn in a day. I have watched. In fact, it's interesting because three years ago, I was here in about, about the same time, about March. I came here about the 5th to the 10th. I remember spending some time. I remember coming in, hearing some great sermons. And then I left and actually flew to England and then to Rome, Italy. And on Easter Sunday of last year, I was at the Vatican in Rome, Italy. A powerful, power, and I was, of course, I'd, I was raised both Church of God and Catholic, which is quite a combination. I'd walk in, I walked into the Vatican, and I'm standing next to a priest, and I'm talking with him, and I'm praying for him. He's praying for me. I'm laying hands on on the on this on these priests on these nuns. I'm I'm fellowshipping with them. I'm worshiping with them. I felt the glory of God come down. A group of Filipinos. Uh, I built a school for an orphanage in the Philippines, and I've just always fallen in love with the incredible people of the Philippines. And me and a group of Filipinos were holding hands, worshiping and praising and praying. God is doing something in the Catholic Church. God's doing something, I hope, in the Church of God. God is doing something, I hope, in the Baptist Church. But God is doing something in the church body in the world right now. There's a new awakening. Now, I told you that, that God wants you to die. Listen to this. The Romans, the 12th chapter, the second verse, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, this world's mind, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God. How many of you are looking for the will of God in your life? Here's what it says. Number one, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Think about this. Living unto God, but sacrificing. In other words, dying to self. There's the obedient factor where God says, I want you to die out to self. Now, 
this is an interesting thing because years ago I began to feel this impression and God began to instruct me on some things um, about his will. Now, please forgive me because I'm still a little bit iffy on my balance, so I've got to be very careful. The cross of Christ, if you will do this, and this is a, this is a powerful thing, if you will allow your, the desires that you have to be literally nailed to the cross. In other words, God, I desire that, that you would bring this relationship. But I'm going to lay that relationship down right now for thy will to be done. I'm going to allow it to be nailed to the cross. God, I have a desire for a business. I desire you to help me in business. But I'm going to lay that business down right now. And I do this every day almost. I have a business, and most of you know that I build stuff for theme parks and car dealers, basically. Two of the biggest crooks probably in the world, but I have to lay my business down. Oh, God, I put it down before you, and I, I let it be nailed. My desires, my, my hopes, nailed to the cross. Everything that is about me, put it to the cross. Whatever is not of God, now this is very powerful. Whatever is not of God will die. Whatever desire you have that's not of God needs to die. But let me share this with you. I've seen this happen. Whatever is of God, whatever God has put in your spirit, whatever God has given you in the, in the midst of the night, it will not stay dead. It will rise. On the third day, many times, it will come forth with resurrected life. Can you say yes? Can you say amen? amen. Can I get a witness? Now, how many of you have ever read in Acts 17, 28, where Paul was talking about the, he was talking to the philosophers or the Athenians. He was talking to a a city that was totally taken. And he said, this is what your philosophers or your poets, he said in the King James, this is what your philosophers said. In him we live and breathe and have our being. We think that Paul came up with that. No, that was actually spoken by a man who was a philosopher his name was Socrates. Now, Socrates, how many of you have ever heard of Socrates? If you've seen Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, it's called Socrates. Dude. Still hard for me to watch Keanu Reeves now because I remember he was Ted or Bill or one of them. But Socrates had, Socrates taught Plato. As he taught Plato, Plato then instructed a young man by the name of Aristotle. Aristotle then taught a young man who conquered the world. His name, Alexander the Great. Now, the reason I wanted to tell you about this is Socrates talked about the perfect man. It was a man that 
basically the Greek philosophers and the Greeks would strive to be. It was a man that was strong, a man that was powerful morally. It was a man that always did the right thing. It was a man, and this was the concept. This was the ideal man. Socrates taught about this man, and that's what Paul was saying. He was the perfect man because in him, in who? In Christ Jesus, we have, we live and breathe and have our very being. Now, this is a powerful thing. I've been, I've really been studying over the last few years about a little bit about who Paul was, the Apostle Paul. And incidentally, uh, Brother Paul Riddle came in this morning and brought this in with him. And I said, young man, can I talk with you? And he said, yes, you can. And I said, young man, can you help me? And he brought this in. Now, let me just tell you something. What's powerful, the Apostle Paul studied the Greek philosophies. And when he would talk to the Greeks, he knew what he was talking about. When he would, when he would go into the synagogues, he knew the law. He studied with the Hebrew. He studied with Hebrew scholars. But the Apostle Paul, let me get a drink of water really quick. The Apostle Paul was talking to the Greeks. Now, here's another thing that, that will, you'll find fascinating. That if you remember when Paul would talk and preach, that we see through a glass darkly. Do you remember that? We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now, the Greeks and Socrates mainly developed this. It was, it was a story, but it was used to illustrate a point. He said there were people of the cave. It's called the cave of shadows. The cave of shadows. In that cave, they were bound with chains. And all they could see on the, the wall of the cave was shadows, shadows, shadows. They, they, would, they would think that that was all their life. It was just the shadows, the shadows, the shadows. But then Socrates taught that there was one man who said, I will not be in chains. I will no longer be in the land of the shadows where there was no color, where there was no light. The one thing I remember about heaven was the colors. You see, Sister uh, Pastor Rhonda's hat, color. Colors ten times, a thousand times greater than that red. A thousand times more pretty than that pink right there. Uh, who has a blue? Any Brother Todd, a thousand times more blue than, than your shirt or your shirt. Blues, colors, explosive colors. A man one day said in the, 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 the hall or the cave of shadows, I've got to get away from this place. It's black and white. It's shadowy, dark, musty. And so he somehow finagled and got the chains off. And he, he walked out and he, he came up through the cave and he saw. And all of a sudden he looked and he walked into the land of colors the real world, he'd lived his whole life in the land of the shadows, in the cave of the shadows. But the second he saw the colors, he said, oh, look, look at the colors of this place. In Spanish, it's called de colores, 
colors. Azul, which is blue. Verde, which is green. He saw the grass. And then all of a sudden he said, I, I, I have to go back. I have to go back. I have to tell the people of the cave of shadows about this incredible place where there's waterfalls, where there's colors, where there's green grass and trees that bloom explosively, the wisteria, the lilacs, the, the beautiful roses. I've got to tell these people. Let me share this with you. When he would go back, now remember, Socrates is teaching this. When he would go back to the cave of the shadows, he would tell them, he'd say, I, you've got to go where I've been, a place of colors, a place of joy, a place of running water and waterfalls that, that explode in colors of blue and green. The people of the cave would all of a sudden say, oh, oh no, You're, you must be mistaken, sir. We don't believe there's a place like that because our whole life has been in the cave of the shadows. Socrates taught that the people of the cave would rise up and would kill that man. When Paul came to Athens, he said, I want to teach you about a man that has seen the world, the other world. And the Jews rose up with the Romans' help and killed that man. And that's why the Greeks in mass came to Christ, because they said, our philosophy talks about a man in whom we live and breathe and have our being. The third thing that I want to share with you before I close, and, you know, I just, I have been a person in the last three years that has gone through horrendous pain. Since 2012, there were nights where I would literally scream in agony. I had a physical therapist say to me, he said, I believe it's your nerves. Because I had, I don't, most of you know, I had a massive stroke in 2012. And he said, your nerves are beginning to reconnect. And they're beginning to, to come back in, basically come back together. He said, and during that time, it's the same thing. How many of you have ever heard of what's called phantom pain, where a man is amputated, his leg is amputated, or his, cut, his foot is cut off, and he still feels the toes? That's called phantom pain. Well, let me tell you, they can say it's phantom all they want, but trust me when I say this. When you are laying in the bed or you're sitting on the floor crying, please, God, forgive me, take away this pain. It's not phantom to you. It's not phantom to you. Jesus on the cross, the Bible says in Isaiah, but and let me just tell you about Isaiah. Isaiah 400 years before Christ would come, predicted and showed how he would die. A pastor, dear pastor friend of mine, used to be a professor at Lee said these words. He said, I think it's the gospel according to Isaiah, written 400 years before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Isaiah. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus, 
talking about Christ, he is despised and rejected of men. How many of you know what it is to be rejected? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. How many of you know how, how it is to experience grief? Hank and I, we were coming back from South Carolina, stopped in Carson Springs, Tennessee. And we pulled up at that graveyard. Remember that? My grave, the gravesite where my grandmother, Carrie Williamson Etherton, is born or was died. She was born literally within a few miles of where she died. My grandfather, Joseph Madison Etherton, all the Williamson family are buried on that hillside, all for generations back upon generations back. I, I went to the cemetery where my grandmother and grandfather Mango were buried. Now, they both came. One came from Naples, Italy. The other came from Palermo, Sicily. But they were buried in a place in Rosenhain, New Jersey, where I grew up. Rosenhain, New Jersey is a small little town. But let me share this with you. When we'd go to that grave, I would cry because my dear grandmother, my, gri- my grandmother, Maria Magdalena Romano, Mary Magdalene Romano, married Nicola Mango. They're both buried in that cemetery. And I remember crying so many. My Uncle Nicky is buried there. Their generations are buried there. The rest are buried in Sicily and in, in uh, Naples, Italy. But let me just tell you this. Grief was what Christ understood because he was a man of sorrows. And then rejection. Not only rejection, but how many of you understand what it's like to have people that one week in one week were saying, you're the greatest thing since sliced bologna and bread. But the week later, they turn on you as if you were a dog. This is what happened. And we hid. You see, Isaiah all of a sudden goes and he's there and he's one of the disciples. He's looking and he's he's looking and he's saying, and we hid as it were. He He put himself into a disciple's place. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But it says this, surely, I I started crying this morning when I read this, when I began to pray and ponder over this one scripture. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carries our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But my Lord, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. How many of you really need healing this morning. I'm going to close right now, but I want to share with you something. The crucifixion was the culmination, if literally, 
hours upon hours of sleeplessness, of torture, of blasphemy, of being spat upon. The Bible says that his sweat became great drops of blood. In the garden, he was taking upon himself our sins even then. He was going through the ages and saying, I take the sin of this man. I take the sin of this woman. He was taking our, our, our diseases upon him. He was becoming sin, the Bible says. As his, the, I was reading a medical report about what is called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. That is the sweating of blood. And, you know, when, we're, when we grow up, we think, you know, we grow up, we think, as children, we think, well, he sweat blood. Okay, you know. Uh, he, he just had a little bit of sweat, and it was, it was blood. Okay, I can deal with that. But that's not what it's talking about. And, and you know, be honest with you, in, as a child, Christmas was always our favorite holiday. Because why? Santa Claus, you got gifts, you got presents, bada bing, bada boom. You got what you wanted. Now, then... Second holiday was Easter. They had a little Easter bunny dropped down the... I actually played him in the school play one time. I played the Easter bunny. Yeah, I could see, you know, dressed in pink and all that. But Easter was never my favorite. Christmas was. Why? Because there were more gifts at Christmas. But let me tell you about Easter. Easter was the time where the greatest gift was shown. Easter was the time where... God gave us the gift and then sacrificed that gift. Hematidrosis, the sweating of blood, it it literally happens only when you are in extreme emotional upheaval. And the very fact that you've come that far, 95% of people that have ever experienced the sweating of blood never make it to another day. They die. Jesus went from the sweating of blood in the garden to being beat, spat upon, crowned with thorns, and then taken before Pontius Pilate. He said these words, and I actually played Pontius Pilate, believe it or not, in a, in a, a musical in a mu- musical called Tom, uh, I'm sorry, called Life Giver at the Tupperware Auditorium in Orlando, Florida, and then throughout England, we played the same, we did the musical through a a big church in in Florida called Calvary Assembly. When we went with Life Giver, I began to discern that the the passion of the Christ was not just just the the sweating of blood uh, and, and a man that's been maybe beaten a little bit. No. I saw and I started to experience what Christ had gone through. When then he's beaten with a cat of nine tails, and most of you know what that is. It is pieces of bone and metal uh, woven into a a whip, a, a scourge. Now, the Romans had basically had rules for the scourging and the crucifixion of a man. They had to... There were specific rules that went on in the killing of people. 
they said in one place that there were so many crucifixions outside the city of Rome that for over 50 miles there were, you could see the crosses, the crosses, the crosses of people that had rebelled against the mighty Roman Empire. Crucifixion was a knowledge of them. It was actually started by the Phoenicians. But crucifixion began to be the way of the Roman, uh, the, basically the way of a Roman death penalty. Now, Jesus on the cross, they've, they've taken him, they beat him, they've taken the cat of nine tails and ripped his back open. So much damage to his back, to his face, that when he walked out, Pilate said, Behold the man. He had to identify, this is the man that you gave me to scourge. And then Pilate had an interaction with Christ, with the the crowd. He said, I will release to you a man. For if give us, if you'll just tell me which one. He said, do you want the Christ, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas? When they began to cry out, Give us Barabbas. Do you know what that actually means? Bar means son of in Hebrew. Abbas means father. What they were crying out was, give us the son of the father. And yet the son of almighty God, they were saying, crucify him. Crucify him. I want to share this with you. I'm going to close. The Bible says that he experienced every bit of our wound, every bit of our destruction. He experienced the agony that we have gone through, except not just one, but every person that's lived in this world. He came to us. The Bible says that the Samaritan, there was a Samaritan. The Bible says he came where we were. He came where the man was and he poured in the oil and the wine. That is what Jesus did. He comes to us and he pours in the oil and the wine. I preach a lot on restoration. Joel 2.25 is my theme song or is my theme theme uh, scripture. It says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But let me tell you something, my friend, my friends. Jesus comes not only to restore, but to resurrect. And I'm going to ask you this day, whatever your need is, I'm going to ask you to stand with your eyes closed. I just felt such incredible, incredible compassion this morning that I began to weep. And I said, God, help me to be, help me to be a man that communicates the love of Christ. Help me to be a man that communicates that Jesus Christ died and was buried and is risen again. And I'm going to ask you today, whatever your need is, I want you to speak that scripture. If you need restoration, I want you to say, God, I believe that you are restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. If you need healing, I want you to say, with your stripes, I am healed. 
whatever your need, if it's provision of provision of food, say, give us this day our daily bread. 